Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, the um, longest book in the Bible, the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, we pause in our hearts. We pause from singing. We pause before we jump into hearing a message. To lay our lives before you. To tell you that we love you. And the more we learn about your character and nature, the more compelling you are to love and serve. Father, I pray that as we look at this prophet's experience of a vision of seeing you high and lifted up, that in our own heart, the eyes of our heart would see you as well in in the very lofty position that you indeed occupy. And Lord, I pray that we would grow. We'd grow in our love for you. We would grow in our treatment of each other, for in Jesus' name we ask that. Amen. Well, you know, there are some characteristics of God that are very appealing characteristics. His love, for example, is probably the most appealing and attractive part of His nature to most people. Who doesn't like to sing about God's love or talk about God's love or preach about God's love? It's an appealing characteristic, as is His grace and His mercy, His might, etc. But there are certain character traits, attributes of God that are less appealing to people. They're very real. They're very much a part of Him, but they're not the most appealing attribute. Years ago, there was a photographer named Yusuf Karsh who photographed famous people. And he had a large format camera, great lens, and he put out a book called Portraits of Greatness. There were 90 of the world's most famous people done in large format photography. Probably the most famous photograph of Winston Churchill is in that book photographed by Karsh. But it was noted that of the 90 pictures of famous people, 70 of them in this book were physically unattractive. 35 in the pictures had moles or warts. 13 sported liver spots. 20 had acne when the photograph was taken. And two of them revealed visible scars. In other words, Karsh, with the detail of his lens and large plate of film, captured people as they really are. That's who they were. Today we look at an attribute of God that is probably the least discussed, the least preached on, and the least attractive to most people. It's not a flaw in any sense of the word, but it is very much part of God's character, and that is His holiness. God's holiness is not His most attractive characteristic, and here's why. 
It's because of this character trait of God that He is holy that is responsible for His actions. He's a God of justice, a God of judgment, a God of vengeance, a God of wrath. The reason hell exists is because God is ultimately a holy God. That's why I say it's not the most popular attribute. However, it is the most noted attribute of God in the entire Bible. God is called holy more than God is called loving, gracious, merciful, kind, powerful. He is known as holy. In fact, just Isaiah the prophet refers to God as the Holy One 30 times in this one book alone. God is holy. Could it be, is it possible that we have been so conditioned by a hyper-grace environment that we have overreached and overestimated His love and mercy and grace and kindness and underestimated His wrath and vengeance and His holiness. It is possible. I would suggest to you that the very core characteristic of God is that He is holy. More than anything else that would describe God, though there's a lot of ways to do it, the core of His being is holiness. Not love. If love were the core of God's being, I suppose God would be letting everybody and anybody into heaven, Adolf Hitler and all his buddies, just come on up. We'll sort everything out when you get here. But he doesn't do that. Now, somebody will quickly say, yeah, but First John chapter 4 says God is love. Please do not misinterpret that text. That doesn't mean that love defines God. It simply means God defines love. It doesn't mean wherever there is any expression of love in the world, we can say that's God. Means that God, because of who He is, can define what love is. Let me take you into my study this week. Of the books that I was reading was a great little book by William Evans called Great Doctrines of the Bible. William Evans notes this, quote, If there is any difference in importance in the attributes of God, that of His holiness seems to occupy the first place. It is, to say the least, the one attribute which God would have His people remember more than any other. Now before you say, oh, but God's holiness, that's such an Old Testament concept, not a New Testament, may I remind you that when Jesus taught His disciples to pray, He said, when you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. That's the one characteristic that we were to remember in our prayer. And what is the adjective that most describes the third person of the Trinity? He's not called the loving spirit or the gracious spirit or the mighty spirit, but the holy spirit. That is how he is designated. And my point is simply this. We cannot pick and choose which character traits of God we like and throw out the rest. We have to take God as he is, the whole package. Now we can either accept or reject the true God, but we can't change him. There's a temple over in Kyoto, Japan. I was there once, not at the temple, but in the city, and there's temples everywhere. But one of the most notable temples is called the Temple of the Thousand Buddhas. There are 1,001 different depictions of Buddha, each one different than the other, in one temple. 
And what you typically have is people will go in, find an image that suits them the most, and they begin worshiping. And I suggest that's exactly how modern man chooses to worship God. I'm going to find an idea of God that suits me the best instead of finding out who God really is, and I'll relate to that. So this morning, I want to take you through this attribute, and I want to have us work our way through eight verses of this chapter, Isaiah chapter 6. I want to give you, in this text, four qualities. Four qualities and how the holiness of God should affect us. Or you might say that the message is called how to relate, how to have a personal relationship with a holy God. First of all, we look at the first four verses. And we discover that holiness describes separation. If you were to put holiness in one word definition, it is that. Separation. Holiness describes separation. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. These are angelic beings. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. First thing that Isaiah sees is God sitting. He's not standing. He's sitting on a throne, place of authority. He's ruling. But he's ruling from the seated position. See, God isn't wringing his hands, standing up, worried like we often do. Somebody once said, God rules the universe with his feet up. Why? Because he can. Nothing taxes him. In fact, there could be a billion more universes besides this one, and all of that wouldn't tax him. He's seated on a throne, and he is in a place of authority. Now, notice it was the year that King Uzziah died. Brief history. Uzziah died in 739 B.C. He was a great guy. He was a good king. He reigned 52 years, and he was considered not only a great politician, but a a godly man. So now... Our godly leader is gone. The throne is vacant. Who's going to rule the nation? And that was the year that Isaiah gets a vision of God on his throne still in charge. I'll tell you what, we have a tendency to forget that, don't we? The world gets weird. Wars break out. The economy turns south. And we need to be reminded that God is still on his throne Not wringing his hands, not looking at our world going, oh no. He's seated. He's in charge. He's got it all covered. See, if we don't realize that, then when we read the newspapers and watch television, we're going to end up in despair. That's why worship is so important. That's why coming to fellowship is so important. Because as we read the scriptures and as we sing these great songs, our whole perspective gets readjusted. 
we're reminded of these wonderful truths and we think, oh yeah, God is still in control. I can trust him. Now, this is a vision of Isaiah. Isaiah didn't really actually physically see God. He saw God in a vision. How do we know this? Because in the Gospel of John it says, no man has seen God at any time. So it's safe to say that this was a vision. If Isaiah would have actually, literally, physically seen God, he wouldn't have lived to write this. Right? Like a bug getting close to a bug zapper. Here's Isaiah. Hey, whatever happened to that Isaiah dude? Oh, he saw God. So this is a vision. And in the vision, the throne of God is lifted up. It's a little bit higher than everything else in this vision. And it's lofty and singular and unique because God's on it. And notice the train of his robe filled the temple. That simply speaks of his splendor. Some of you will remember back to 1981 when Princess Diana and Prince Charles had their wedding and that beautiful scene in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, the train of her gown was 25 feet long as it draped across the cathedral floor. But go back a few years, 1953, I wasn't around yet, but in 1953, Queen Elizabeth was coronated as the new queen and she had a purple velvet train of her robe 60 feet long that flowed through Westminster Abbey. And that that train spoke of her majesty, her splendor, her, in a literal sense, holiness. She was unique. No one else was being coronated. She was separate from everyone else at that moment. So this is a symbol of God's splendor filling the temple. And notice the the worship at least here in this vision, it's pretty loud. If you don't like it loud, I suggest you bring a pair of earplugs with you to heaven because this was so loud, the posts were shaken of the door as Isaiah sees it. Notice the sort of central thought here. It says, they cried, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy. Why three times? In Hebrew, repetition is used for force or emphasis. So if we were to say there's a war going on in the Gaza Strip or there's a war going on in Iraq, that would be accurate. But if we wanted to say, speak of World War II, we would say, now that was a war war. Or if we want to think of the ultimate war, Armageddon, we might say, that's going to be a war, war, war. It's there for emphasis. So God isn't holy. God isn't holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. Notice again, it doesn't say loving, 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 though he is. The angels don't cry, merciful, merciful, merciful. Mighty, 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 or even a combination of holy, loving, mighty. It's holy, holy, holy. What does that mean? First time I heard the word holy, I had a whole bunch of different thoughts other than what it really means. I thought, man, that sounds so churchy. That sounds so stained glass. Holy, yeah. Wearing robes, sandals, eating no food. Uh, out in the desert, all that stuff. 
It simply means to be separate. Kodesh is the Hebrew word. Kodesh. It means to be marked off as special or for special use only. Back in the book of Exodus, the 40th chapter, God says of the tabernacle and all of its vessels, they are holy. He said, now this oil, this oil is holy oil because it's not to be used for anything else but the tabernacle. And with the oil, you are to anoint the pots and pans. Those are holy pots and pans because they're only to be used in the tabernacle. And you see that altar out there? Put oil on that because that's a holy altar only to be used for sacrifice. And Aaron and his sons do the same to them. They're holy people. Now, the intrinsic value didn't change. Aaron didn't glow in the dark. The vessels of the tabernacle had no special look to them. They were just simply marked off for special use. So when we say God is holy, or we speak of the holiness of God, what we're simply saying is there's no one else like him. He is singular. He is unique. He is unparalleled, unprecedented. He is exclusive. That's the simple core idea of the word holiness. And I would say this view of God has been lost in the church. Preferring the comfort of his nearness, we have lost the reality of God's transcendent holiness. He is not the man upstairs. Ever have somebody call God that in your presence? Put in a good word to the big guy for me. Or God is the old codger with the beard. No, he's not. That's not God. God is ineffable glory. He is one who dwells in unapproachable light. Our God is a consuming fire. That's God. That is God in his holiness. So holiness describes separation. The second way that we relate to a holy God is found in verse 5. And here's the principle. Holiness deepens conviction. Look what Isaiah does. Verse 5. So I said, whoa. Not like, whoa, dude. But woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Notice Isaiah didn't go, cool, I saw God. He says, woe is me. Or as one translation puts it, I'm doomed, I'm ruined. Now why would he say that? Why would a prophet of God, who's a holy guy, by definition, why would he say, woe is me? Why wouldn't he say, okay, now I just had an experience very few people, if any, have ever had, so I'm going to write a book, go on a speaking tour, go on television. It's going to be called The Day I Saw God. This is going to be really awesome. His reaction is self-deprecating. Whoa, is me. Here's the reason why. In seeing a holy God, Isaiah saw his unholy self in comparison to a holy God. And that produced a profound sense of conviction. I don't care how holy you are on an earthly level. When you're in the presence of God, this is the reaction. Woe is me. Here's a little comparison on an earthly level. Have you ever in church sat next to somebody during the song part of the service and they sing beautifully, like, like pitch perfect, they sound like an angel. Now you like to sing in the shower, but... Next to that person, it's like, whoa, 
woe is me, and woe is anyone else around me if I start singing right now in comparison to that person. Max Lucado said, you don't impress the officials at NASA with your paper airplane. You don't boast about your crayon sketches in the presence of Picasso. You don't claim equality with Einstein because you can write H2O. And you don't boast about your goodness in the presence of the perfect. So even this prophet, in the presence of a holy God, must say, woe is me. Okay, if, if indeed this is the core of God's character, if that's true, then wouldn't you expect to find a similar response by a lot of people in the Bible that got near to God? Yeah, you would. If God is indeed that, and anybody who gets close to that has that reaction, if that's God's core, then you'd expect it. And you do find it. For instance, Job. Now, how good was Job? He was Mr. Holy, wasn't he? Didn't God say, I have no one on earth like Job? And yet, after he encountered God, Job said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's Mr. Holy talking. Okay, what about Peter in the New Testament? Naturally aggressive, a boastful kind of a guy, a fisherman, until the day Jesus goes fishing with him and he understands who Jesus is. And what does Peter say to Jesus? Jesus, He didn't say, I'm pretty good, huh, Jesus? He says, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And John, when he got the revelation of Jesus Christ in the first chapter... He writes, and I fell at his feet as dead. We find this all throughout, even the picture of our future in heaven. Revelation 4 and 5, there's four living creatures and 24 elders, and they all have crowns on their head. And when the time for the anthem comes to sing to God, they sing, holy, holy, holy. Same song. And it says the elders cast what? Their crowns before him. What's that all about? They're simply saying, in the presence of this one, no honor to me, all honor and glory to him. That's the proper reaction. So, it bothers me when I hear somebody say this. Or when I see God, I have a few things I want to tell him. You have no clue what you just said. In fact, when somebody says that, I want to say, could you move like 10 feet away from me when you say that? Because I'm expecting like lightning at any moment. The truth is, if you are growing at all in a relationship with a holy God, you can tell you are because of the deep, profound sense of conviction about yourself and about him. Jesus put it this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They will see God. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. That's the reaction when unholy men or women meet a holy God. Third thing I want you to notice is that holiness demands purification. Look at verse 6. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar of Isaiah. I'd be thinking, what's he going to do now? And he touched my mouth with it. Ouch! And he said, that's not in there, by the way, ouch, if you're not following along. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. I remember the first time I ate green chili in New Mexico. It was a very similar experience. I mean, I, I tried this. People say, you got to try green chili on everything. So I tried it on something and it was like, explosion. And I thought, who thought of this? This is crazy. But then I became an addict. <laughs> Hi, I'm Skip Heitzig and I'm a chili addict. Okay, apart from that, what, what is all this about? What's going on here? The altar is probably the altar of sacrifice. That's where animals were killed. That's where sin was dealt with. That's where atonement took place. And since there was a, a fire perpetually burning on that altar, this is symbolic of cleansing. The angel takes a coal from the altar where sin is dealt with, where sacrifices are made, and brought over to Isaiah, and it touches his lips. Why his lips? Well, what did he say? I'm a man of unclean what? Lips. So the very area that needed cleansing, God touches. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, what is all this about? Here's the principle. Holiness cannot coexist with unholiness. Holiness cannot exist with unholiness. Either the holy God must destroy that which is unholy or, or make that which is unholy holy somehow. Or at least declare it. Confer holiness upon it. Purge the sin. And is not that the story of the whole Bible? Go way back to the Old Testament, that whole tabernacle thing we're talking about. You couldn't just walk into God's house one day and go, yeah, I'm just going to hang out with God. Priest, move out of the way. I'm going to go around the altar. I'm going to walk right into the Holy of Holies, have a few words with God. You'd be struck dead. Even the high priest couldn't do that. So you had to come very carefully, bringing an animal, going through the ritual, having blood atoned for. And now, since the blood was shed, your sin was covered temporarily in the Old Testament. God could confer upon you a sense of holiness. He could regard you as his own child. And we get to the New Testament. And now we have Jesus, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, the perfect Lamb, the one who lived the perfect life that you and I could never live, the Holy One. And then he dies in our place, and all of his holy merit is conferred to your account, and you become his child. It's the idea of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. You were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish and without spot. A perfectly holy lamb. And the great principle of all this is simply the only one who is perfectly holy can perfectly cleanse one who is unholy. Either there is an ultimate destruction of the unholy, because God is holy, or God somehow forgives and purges and makes holy. 
Isaiah understood this. That's why he said, woe is me. That's why he allowed this and the vision to take place so that he could be cleansed of his sin. And that's the reason he freely admitted, not righteous is me, cool am I, but woe is me. And let me suggest to you that one of the reasons that people can go to church around the world in our country week after week after week after week and remain unchanged in their marriage, in their business, at home, is because they don't admit or see that great gulf that separates them and God. They don't see the need for cleansing, the need for adjustment. And so you hear it when somebody prays this, God, if I have sinned, forgive me. If? If? How about since? Because if you're not sure, why do you bother even praying about it? You see, it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, that means agree with holy God about the unholiness of our sinful nature. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There has to be the admission of need before there is ever any kind of cleansing at all. I've always enjoyed the story of Frederick the Great, the Prussian king who visited a prison in Berlin. And as he walked through the prison, all the different prisoners in the cell blocks were proclaiming his innocence. I shouldn't be here. I was wrongly judged. you got to get me out of here. He came to the last prisoner, who didn't say anything at all. And the king looked at him and said, Well, I suppose you're an innocent victim also. To which the man responded, No, I'm not, sire. I'm guilty and I deserve punishment. And the king smiled and said to the warden, Release this rascal before he corrupts all these fine, innocent people. (laughs) You know what? That's exactly what God does with us. The person who says, I'm righteous enough, I'm religious enough, I'm good enough, nothing. But the person who says, I admit, woe is me and I need cleansing, God says, now. You'll be released. You'll be cleansed. And this is simply why many religious people, good people, don't make it to heaven. They see no need for cleansing in their own life. They see no sin. Thus, they seek no Savior. This is how you relate to a holy God. Fourth and finally, holiness develops commission. Verse 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying... Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Something to note here. God is all about looking for volunteers, not forced labor. And and I bring this up because I think a lot of Christian organizations and churches have tried to artificially produce what is a natural spiritual process. They try to guilt people into serving. You ought to be more involved and just making them do everything instead of allowing the Spirit of God through an encounter with the Holy God that produces conviction and cleansing to then motivate them towards service. And God's holiness will ultimately do that. Here's why. There's a process that Isaiah is following here in this chapter. It begins with the revelation of the Holy God followed by a conviction of my own sin, 
leads me to be cleansed of my sin. And eventually, I want to be totally committed to the one who cleansed me. I want to do whatever he wants. That's called being holy in a practical sense. He now is in a practical sense outworking what God declared him to be, and that is cleansed, righteous, holy. This is always the pattern, always the pattern. Unholy man or woman meets holy God, is convicted of their own sin, confesses it, is cleansed, and eventually wants to go to work for him. I see this all the time. I see it all the time. All the pastors that work on this staff, all of the ministry leaders in this church, who are they? I'll tell you who they are. They're saved sinners who met a holy God, transformed by him, and now are sold out to him. They want to be used by him. And isn't this the greatest challenge? Isn't the greatest challenge of the Christian life to increasingly match our practice with our position? See, it's one thing for God to declare us as righteous and holy. It's another thing practically to live a righteous, holy life. And I find my greatest challenge is to match my practice with my position. Example, Ephesians 1, verse 4. God chose us that we should be holy and without blame before Him. That's a positional statement. That's how God views you today. God, right now, views you, if you've received Christ, no matter what state you're in, as holy and without blame before Him. But the challenge is to, as I live my life, to increasingly match my demonstration with His declaration. I find that to be the great challenge. The Bible calls that sanctification, being holy, same idea. I love what Leighton Ford once said. He said, God loves you just the way you are, but He loves you too much to leave you that way. Isn't that true? When you come to Christ, understand it's a package deal. He's going to take you as you are, but then he's going to go to work on you. He's going to go to work on you, and I'm really glad for that. I'm glad he loves me too much to leave me the way I am. Uh, This last week, I was walking, and somebody asked me, what are you going to preach on Sunday? And I said, the holiness of God, and he jokingly said, I don't think I'm going to come this weekend. In other words, it's probably going to be a convicting message. And I know he said that jokingly, but there was a little bit of truth in that. All of that to say, we can't skip this if we're not interested in it. This is not an elective. This is not optional. We must major in this. This is what we're called to. You say, well, how do you know that, Skip? You're making a whole lot. I'm making a whole lot of it because of the abundance of times the Bible brings this out. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. Couldn't be any clearer than that. This is what God wants for your life, to be holy. Or Hebrews chapter 12, pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Or Leviticus 11, God said to his people, you must be holy, for I am holy. You're going to follow me? I'm going to be your father? Well, here's the principle, like father, like son. If I'm holy, I want you to be holy. And when we are, we're godly. Godly just means godlike. We're like God. 
So I'm going to close with this thought. How can you tell if you're becoming more holy? If you look at your life last year, the year before, to this year, today, how do you know you're growing in holiness? It's pretty simple. Number one, because you love the things God loves. And number two, because you hate the things God hates. You love what holy God loves. What does holy God loves? Righteousness, purity. And you could go on to all of those lists of great attributes. What does God hate as a holy God? Sin, unrighteousness, impurity. So how do you know you're growing and to be godly? Because you're loving what God loves and you hate what God hates. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot of great stuff. I, I have a lot of his books. I have to read them three or four or five or six times to understand half of them. But here's one thing he said that even I can understand. He writes, how little do people who think that holiness is dull? Or how little do people know who think that holiness is dull? When I meet the real thing, it's irresistible. If even 10% of the world's population had it, holiness, would not the whole world be converted before the year's end? Isn't it true? I'll tell you, it is for me. The most compelling people I have ever met are those who are holy people. There's something about their integrity and lifestyle and relationship with God that draws me into them and wants me to emulate that. It's very, very compelling. And I pray, I really do sincerely pray that for us, for our congregation, that holiness will not be the most unpopular attribute, but the most popular attribute. That when we read texts on that, and they're abundant, and we, we hear and sing about it, it's like, yeah, that's what I want. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the greatest miracle of all is that holy God could take an unholy man or woman and make them holy. You freely give that designation to all of your people. We are your holy people, your saints, the set-apart ones. But Father, that practice of separation is quite another thing. And we pray that by your grace, what you have started, what you have begun in us, you would complete until the day of Christ. And Father, I pray that as we grow, not in dullness, but in holiness, that compelling quality of a godly life, that many would be drawn by it. Continue your work. Thank you for your commitment to us. And in turn, we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.